Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis of the beautiful game. I'm Johnny McFarlane and I am your host for today's episode. I'm joined as ever by our intrepid transfer guru, Mr. Duncan Castles. And today we have a host, a plethora of transfer news as well as top discussion about the game and what's happening across Europe today. We will go straight to an important story coming out of Chelsea about William. Duncan, what's happening there? Yeah, look, that's something we've been talking about in the transfer window for quite a while now, that uh, William wants to stay at Chelsea, wants to stay in London. His family are, are happy there. Uh, he's been negotiating with Chelsea. He's he's had an offer from them um, for a one-year contract extension with a, a one-year uh, option with, with reasonably easy um, triggers involved to turn it into a two-year deal, but that's not sufficient for him. He's been looking for a, a three-year deal, believes he is worth that. In, in uh, support of his case, he has Frank Lampard, who regards him as an extremely important player in his squad. Um, he likes him as an individual. He likes his attitude to the game. He likes his ability, his tactical flexibility. Uh, he thinks uh, William is one of the best trainers in the squad and therefore is an excellent example to um, the host of academy players that he's been promoting into the first team this season. And fundamentally, does not want to lose the player and has been pushing Chelsea to give William the deal um, he wants. That has not happened. Um, the information we have in the transfer window is that the standoff between the two sides is such that William has basically informed Lampard that he thinks he will not be staying at the club um, that because uh, he does not see the prospect of them improving the offer, he has made it clear he's unhappy with the offer that he's been given. He's even um, talked publicly about this over the weekend following um, the, the, the big win over Everton um, to the Brazilian press, um, saying that, the, that Chelsea offered him two and he demanded three and it stopped there and there's nothing much happening, uh, in his words. Um, and the expectation is that this is not going to be resolved. On top of this, the information we have is that Tottenham Hotspur have proposed a deal um, that Josie Mourinho wants William to stay in London and move across London and come and be part of his team next season. Mourinho, obviously a huge admirer of the, of the player, um, uh, an individual he worked with as part of his last Premier League uh, winning squad, an individual he was um, interested in and attempted to bring to Manchester United when he was coached there. Lampard is well aware of Mourinho's interest in the player and has been expecting an offer to come in. And um, our understanding is that, that Tottenham are prepared to give William the contract he would like, i.e. a, a three-year total term, with the, two, the first two years being guaranteed and the first year being dependent on um, trigger performances. And the, the shape of that is acceptable to William. Um, 
we're not saying it cannot change, um, but what would be required for it to change is a, de a, a decision to come from Marina Granovskaya that uh, she's prepared to back her manager when he asks for a player who is at 31 already over the age um, limit where Chelsea like to uh, restrict contracts to just a, a year guaranteed duration um, and give him a player to remain in the squad rather than to go and recruit in that position as she tried to do in the January window. We told you about um, their efforts to sign Jadon Sancho, a move that Lampard wasn't particularly keen on because he felt that the scale of the transfer fee would be um, too large and it wasn't a position where he wanted to spend that amount of money on a, on a younger player on high wages who would have a high profile. And because he's happy with the, the resource he has there at the moment, i.e. William. So it's going to need a fundamental change in stance by um, Chelsea's hierarchy to allow William to stay at the club. And I think it, it's, a, it's a situation we should pay attention to going forward because we've told you that there, there have been difficulties between Lampard and Marina Granovskaya. The, the standoff between the two ended up in nothing being done in the January transfer window when um, Lampard made it quite clear that he wanted reinforcements and he wanted some of the, the money that had been saved through not working in, uh, in the, the summer transfer window to be used then, but wasn't prepared to have players foist upon him. Um, so there, there's tension there already. And I think William's situation is another one where there, there is tension involved and where it looks at present as if Lampard is not going to get what he wants and therefore um, William will be left as a free agent on the market um, with a desire to stay in London and a manager across London who's a great admirer of his and wants to bring him to um, naming rights lane as we call it on the on the podcast. <laughs> Well, um, from a player that was signed by Jose Mourinho to another player that was signed by Mr. Jose Mourinho, Manchester United's Nemanja Matic, who has looked like for quite a while he might be on his way out of Old Trafford, but Duncan, that might not be the case. No, um, I think Uli Gunnar Solskjaer has finally realised what a quality player he has um, in his ranks there. Matic is a, an individually sidelined um, at the start of the campaign. We told you on the podcast a long time ago about the, the problems between the two over that. Um, basically, Matic was offered a big deal um, by Inter, um, Antonio Conte wanting to bring him to Serie A to be part of his uh, team to attempt to, to wrest the Scudetto off Juventus. Um, Matic took that offer to Solskjaer and said, look, um, I'm happy to stay at Manchester United, but I need to know I'm going to be playing at my stage of the career. I, I don't want to be a reserve. Um, if you don't rate me and, you know, I know I haven't been your first choice during your first season at the club, then this offer is very interesting to me. It gives me long-term security, allows me to play football, and I'd like to take it. Solskjaer told him, no, you are central to my plans. Um, I'm not going to allow you to leave and then promptly picked um, almost everyone else in Manchester United squad who can play in midfield ahead of him for the first half of the season. So we saw Andreas Pereira playing ahead of him. We saw Scott McTominay playing regularly ahead of him. Um, 
we saw other players coming into those central midfield positions instead of Matic. And in fact, um, in the fir- that first uh, 19 Premier League games that um, Manchester United played this season, Matic started just two of them. He's still at a stage where he's only started um, 11 Premier League games this season and has been has played 37% of Premier League minutes. And that is down to Solskjaer sidelining him and also um, some injury difficulty he had during that period, although the majority of time he was kept out of the side on the basis that he was injured. My understanding is that he would have been able to play um, had he been wanted in the team. But that's changed now. Um, injuries at United have forced Solskjaer to play Matic. Matic and Fred, but two two players who, who hadn't been particularly well valued by Solskjaer have come in and been central to the uh, the good run of form that Manchester United have put together in the last 10 games, unbeaten in 10 games. And um, a resolution is almost reached in terms of um, Matic staying at the club. So um, United have an option to extend for a further year, uh, one that Matic was prepared to fight against earlier in the season if he was when he was out of the team. Um, that offer to extend would have uh, involved a, a step up in his uh, financial terms. But over the last couple of weeks, United have come to him and proposed a new long-term deal, which includes a pay rise. Now, um, guidance I have from a friend of Matic is that he has not signed that deal as yet, but he is happy with the the outline terms. Um, he's happy that Solskjaer now considers him important to the team, and he's happy that Manchester United want to keep him and are prepared to give him a degree of financial security involved in a long-term contract. So the the direction of travel is very much that this new deal should be completely agreed in the coming weeks and signed and Matic will stay at Old Trafford and uh, stay as as an important part of of a midfield that's been delivering results for the first time for a long time. We're going to move on to Manchester United, Manchester City now at the weekend. Duncan, a fantastic result for United and continuing their good form against their local rivals. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has had a lot of criticism on this podcast. Perhaps it's time to take another look at his reign? Um, look, it, it was a, a great result, um, absolutely. Beating Manchester City uh, back-to-back um, uh, in the Premier League, uh, something that has not been achieved for a long period of time at, at Manchester United, beating um, side managed by Pep Guardiola twice in a row. Um as I say, part of that 10-game unbeaten run, um, which has got them in range of a Champions League qualifying place, although still not back into the top four, three points behind Chelsea, um, two ahead of Sheffield United and Wolves. Um, Sheffield United having a game in hand on, on Manchester United still. Um, they played well. They used an intelligent game plan, Um a predictable game plan. It's something we've seen Solskjaer do on, on multiple occasions against um, sides with, with better attacking resources, which is to set up with a back five, um, regardless of the fact he's playing at Old Trafford, um, sit deep, um, attack the opposition when they can on counter-attacks and at set pieces, 
and look to score the first goal in the game, which um, if they get the first goal in the game, opens the opponents out and allows them um, more chances to score. That plan was implemented well. Um, they got some breaks. Uh, obviously, the, the, the goal they scored, which was, which was beautifully invented um, by Bruno Fernandes um, and very well taken by Anthony Martial, um, came from what shouldn't have been a free kick. I think uh, most observers are clear that Bruno Fernandes wasn't um, fouled, uh, but managed to um, convince Mike Dean he was. Um, and some very bad goalkeeping um, from Ederson, who, uh, who I think in most occasions you'd expect to save that shot from Martial, and added to that by giving a, a second goal away in the final minute of the, the match. Um, so Solskjaer did what he needed to do, um, and he, he's been very good at implementing that game plan. Um, he has uh, obviously... Um, no concerns about playing with a back five at Old Trafford, something which uh, would have been anathema to his uh, predecessor, Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as you get the results, then I think he'll be excused doing that. And, and pragmatic football, which delivers results, will always be um, rewarded by supporters, especially when you play against teams like that. Um, whether this is actually means that Manchester United problems are solved, um, I think that would probably be taking it a step too far because you're, you're still looking at a team that are outside the Champions League qualification places and still looking at a team that's on course for its lowest ever um, Premier League points return. So across the balance, across the balance of games, um, the team is still underperforming for what you'd expect a Manchester United team to do. And I think the only reason that they're still in with a chance of qualifying in the Champions League is because their, uh, uh, their opponents in the big six are, are, are having, the majority of them, historically bad seasons. So Chelsea um, have lost nine games already this season. Um, Arsenal are in ninth place. Tottenham in in eighth place having lost 10 games and having sacked a manager Arsenal also having sacked a manager uh, Manchester City having lost seven games and you know we know what Manchester City's situation is they, uh, they can't win the Premier League Pep Guardiola gave up on that months ago, the focus is on winning the Champions League um, they have not been performing to the exceptional levels they did in the previous two seasons and you look at the lineup that Guardiola put out in that game. He, he starts with Phil Foden against Manchester United, so a player he rarely trusts for important matches, and rests Kevin De Bruyne, who he said would have been able to play but was left out of the team as a precaution. Now, when a, a manager of Manchester City decides to leave out his most creative player against a team he knows is going to play a back five defence, um, and he knows would be the best option for breaking down that back five defence. You can tell that the game wasn't of the same importance to City in the broader scheme of things um, as it would be in normal circumstances. And I think completely understandably because they have 10 days coming up in which they play four matches, including um, their return tie against Real Madrid. And um, 
if you have to pick the one game that's most important to Manchester City and Pep Guardiola at present, it's that game against Real Madrid because he knows he will be judged on how well they do in the Champions League this season and he knows he has an opportunity to get into the quarter-final of the, of the competition having won the away leg against Madrid. Obviously, we're a podcast that focuses on transfers, Duncan. Is there a sense that Bruno Fernandes has been a transformative signing? And do you think United will be looking on that deal as a bargain already? He's definitely been transformational in terms of the way the team can play. Um, you know, we, we pointed this out during the whole extended um, saga of of the Bruno Fernandes deal and Manchester United being in a position where they were the, the only club who could take him in January and put him immediately in the team. In the end, an offer from Barcelona to take the player in the summer provoked them into meeting Sporting's asking price and a guaranteed 55 million euros, 65 million euros when you, you add in the easy bonuses and up to 80 million euros um, plus a sell-on. Um, depending on how well Bruno Fernandes does during his time at Manchester United. But we said this is a player who can make the difference in games with his ability to score and create goals. He can turn a, a stodgy team who's who have been dependent on counter-attack into a team that has a way of breaking down opponents um, when they sit deep against them. And you know, I think the, the Watford game is the, the, the great example of this here. That that was a match in which Watford started well, um, put United into a lot of difficulties with their game plan. And Bruno Fernandes opened that game up by winning a penalty and converting the penalty. And Manchester United generally, when they get a goal up in these games, are fine because then the opponents open out and come to them. So, so Bruno has added that to the team and he's adapted really rapidly, um, very un unusually for a, a player coming in from a foreign league, very unusually for a player coming in from January. And I think an element of why he's adapted so rapidly is I think he's come into the team and realised quickly that he's really important to them and he's in, in many ways better than the majority of players in the squad. So that kind of self-doubt and, uh, and the difficulty that most players from overseas have coming into the Premier League, I think has been erased for him by looking around him and, and seeing his importance immediately and, and, and getting a confidence boost from, uh, from, from knowing he's central to the team's plans and can make a difference immediately playing within that team. One thing that did uh, catch my attention, Duncan, was a graphic, I think it was on Sky Sports, but certainly it's been doing the rounds on Twitter of the Premier League since Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took over from Jose Mourinho. And it shows that Manchester United, if you tally up the points from the 50 games played since he arrived, are actually third in the Premier League table and ahead of Chelsea, Leicester, Arsenal. Obviously, they are behind Liverpool and Man City, who have been racking up points at an incredible rate over that period. But does that not back up this idea that Solskjaer perhaps is in line for a review in terms of the big picture of where he's taking the club? Yeah, I think you have to do the big picture thing when you when you look at those kind of statistics. Um, so, first of all, you're taking an arbitrary period. So, you know, leagues aren't decided from, from December until May, 
plus then adding on from um, new season to March. Um, so in, in both of those periods, they failed to achieve their targets in the league. Um, if the league ends tomorrow, Manchester United are fifth um, and outside the Champions League qualification places as set at the beginning of the season. Obviously, what happens with Manchester City would, would have a variation in that, but it, you know, it, it's irrelevant until you decide what has happened at the end of the season and the Champions League qualifications are put together. I think it tells you um, how bad the other big six teams have been over that period. It kind of reinforces the, the problems they have. So if you do the calculation again, so it's 85 points from 50 games is what Solskjaer has got. That averages out at 1.7 points per game, which would make it over the course of a 38-point season, 64.6 points in a season. That's 0.6 of a point better than David Moyes' Manchester United season for Premier League points return. And David Moyes' return of 64 points is the worst in Manchester United's Premier League history. So yes, during that period, they are behind only Liverpool and Manchester City, but they're miles behind Liverpool and Manchester City and way behind what you would expect a Manchester United team to do. You know, they're, they're, they're marginally ahead of what many people consider to be the worst season of the, the post-Sir Alex Ferguson years, the David Moyes season. Then take the other analysis, which is what did he inherit? What did Manchester United do the season before he was put in charge? Well, they returned 81 points. They were behind only Manchester City um, in that record 100-point season from Manchester City. So if, if your question is, has Ole Gunnar Solskjaer improved Manchester United? Has he done what you would expect him to do um, given the players he inherited and given the resources available to him? And remember, this is a, you know, a squad that's had £140 million of transfer fees spent on two defenders um, and also the, the Bruno Fernandes um, very large transfer fee for a playmaker added into what they had in that 2017-18 uh, season um, and are now playing in the important games a very conservative back five football um, playing on the counter-attack pretty far away from what most people would describe as the Manchester United way and, and what previous um, managers, Moyes, Van Gaal, Mourinho were criticised for not playing. So there was this constant pressure on them to play the right kind of football as well as deliver results. Um, you know, it's a big decline on 81 points. Um, and it's not that far off what David Moyes was delivering. So I think... I think there's a problem of getting carried away with um, results in individual matches and, and not seeing the bigger picture of, um, of what their performances are over the entire period. And um, saying they're only behind Liverpool and Manchester City, well, the, the target for Manchester United is supposed to be beating Liverpool and Manchester City. That's what the expectation was on the previous managers, was to beat them. Um, so... I think I think context is important here, and um, and performance, actual performance across 
the, the range of games as opposed to picking out the what have been very impressive results against the big six teams. But a Premier League de- season is not decided on results against the big six teams. It's decided on results against the other 19 teams. Before we go and change the subject to something else, Duncan, um, we've been bringing you the news about uh, Jude Bellingham for some time here on the podcast. What's the latest on that transfer for the guy that's now become known as the Birmingham Wonder Kid? (laughs) Yeah, well, we told you last week that um, he was close to agreeing personal terms with Borussia Dortmund and that uh, Birmingham City had given Borussia Dortmund... uh, the rights and the freedom to speak to Bellingham and his father about a deal. Um, and we predicted that other clubs would now have to make their offers to try and better those um, proposals from Germany and from elsewhere. I think what we've seen this week is Manchester United coming back in again. In January, we told you of their £25 million offer for the player that was rejected by um, the player and his father because they felt the the um, the development path wasn't right for him at Manchester United. Bellingham yesterday um, went to the Carrington training ground for talks and to be shown around the training ground. Um, so you, you see Manchester United now having a, a third attempt uh, to sign this player and to convince him that the right career move is to come uh, to Old Trafford and be part of Solskjaer's rebuild. They'll be selling him the story of, of um, we promote youth, we put young players in the first team, we'll give you the opportunity to play. Um, and we'll see what his decision is, whether they, whether he can be convinced, um, ha- having rejected United on a couple of occasions already, um, that Manchester United is the best place to further his career or whether he follows that route that players like Jaden Sancho have done and go to Germany um, for a couple of seasons um, to experience another league, um, a different kind of football, train in a different environment, um, probably have a better chance of getting regular first-team football, or take up an offer from elsewhere, because this this has now got to the stage where the majority of the biggest teams in European football are not only just watching the player, they're trying to decide whether um, how much he is worth and whether they can put together an offer which convinces him that they are the right place for him to go after he leaves Birmingham City. City will sell. Um, probably you're looking at a fee of £30 million and City would prefer to retain him for a year Um before allowing him to leave to whichever club he goes to. Um, but we're in the auction stage and the, the determiner of the auction is actually the player and his father. They all decide where they want to go because we now know that the, the transfer fee that Birmingham City want is going to be matched um, and that the player will move on. But where he moves on depends on who sells the best case to him. Football is being played behind closed doors. Italian clubs in Spain are playing behind closed doors. It's quite a mess at the moment and the ramifications could be absolutely huge. Where do we stand, do you think? Well, 
if we're talking about the Premier League and we're talking about football in the UK, um, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport held a meeting with the organisers of not just football, but all the, the major sports in the UK yesterday to discuss strategy and give advice on what they should do. Um, they came out with a statement saying that uh, based upon the current scientific advice from the government's medical experts, there is no rationale to close or cancel sporting events as things stand. We will remain in regular dialogue with sports governing bodies and broadcasters, ensuring they are in receipt of the most up-to-date guidance from the health authorities. I think it's interesting they mentioned broadcasters there because the information coming out of that meeting was that part of the concern was um, how much it would cost broadcasters if, for example, the Premier League was to follow the, the route that Serie A has taken and has taken under pressure from players. This should be emphasised that, that um, Serie A was trying to continue playing games and they were trying to do it behind closed doors. And eventually the Italian Footballers Association said, we don't want to do this anymore and the leagues have to be stopped um, they, they put a statement out, I think, on Monday saying it's dangerous to travel from and to the danger zones. It's dangerous to play football. It's dangerous to embrace each other. The teams, unfortunately, are going out onto the field today due to those who don't have the courage to decide that football can't be an exception against the coronavirus. So ultimately, in Italy, the players stopped the sport. I have the feeling that we are not going to see Premier League football for too much longer in England. I think at minimum we're going to end up with closed doors football, but probably we're going to end up with a suspension as has happened in Italy. And it might well be that it's the players ultimately who, dis who put the pressure on the clubs to say, we don't want to take the risk anymore. Obviously, spread of the coronavirus in the UK is not as severe as it is in Italy as yet, but as yet is the is the, the I think the key element here. It doesn't look like any of the European countries have got a a um, a strong handle on controlling the spread the spread of the disease, and um, the countries that have been hit hardest by it, Italy and France, have already taken the most severe action on football. You see, as you said, in the Champions League. Um, we have the Spanish clubs who have uh, Valencia have been drawn against Atalanta, an Italian club who are based in what was the, the, the one of the quarantine zones in Italy. Italy now, as of today, the, the entire country is a quarantine zone. But that game between Valencia and Atalanta was the. Uh, decided by the Spanish authorities would be played behind closed doors. Sevilla playing Roma, another Italian club in Europa League this week. That is to be, be behind closed doors. Paris Saint-Germain, Dortmund in the Champions League this week. The French authorities determined that should be behind closed, closed doors. And they have, um, on the, the guidance of the French sports minister, they've made all top flight football matches behind closed doors or with a maximum attendance of a thousand people until 15th of April. Um, when DCMS, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, were discussing it, they apparently asked the broadcasters to come back and give them guidance on how much it would cost them 
the broadcasters if they were to a make um, all Premier League games available on uh, free uh, TV, or um, to prevent them from being broadcast in pubs, because one of the concerns is if you if you make the games closed doors, then the fans do what you normally do if you can't get a ticket for a match and you go and watch it with friends in the pub rather than watching at home. Now, if you're watching with friends in the pub and you have large crowds in the pub, then the question is, is that any safer than having large crowds in the stadium? So do you then have to ban football from pubs as well as from stadia going forward to get the health benefits and to uh, try and slow down the, the spread of the virus? I don't see that there is a there's a, a coherent answer here, um, and I think the authorities are are pretty much just holding back the tide on sports until they're forced to act by governments and or and or by participants, as happened in Italy with the with the players saying we we don't want to take this risk anymore, um, and essentially threatening to go and strike if Serie A hadn't been suspended. Duncan, I see obviously everything through a Scottish football lens because that's what I cover on a day-to-day basis. And one of the, the impacts of the coronavirus potentially and games being played behind closed doors is, of course, the economic impact that's going to have, especially in smaller leagues, uh, with crowds not being able to go and pay at the gate to get into games. A lot of these clubs are, are living hand-to-mouth. But I suppose even at the the elite level of the Premier League, that's going to be a big hit for a club, say, like Tottenham, not to have a full stadium uh, supporting the team and, and, and put money into the club. They'll lose match day revenue for sure. If you go through the the, um, the accounts of Premier League clubs, the, the percentage of the revenue that's based on match day revenue, so tickets and sales um, of food and drink during the games is is not as high as you would get in the kind of clubs you're talking about, they can, they can definitely afford to take a short-term hit on um, on not having match day revenue. But yeah, there's questions of what happens with the competition um, when you have, as we already have, Champions League games where one side plays in front of their home supporters and the other side, PSG and you know Valencia in this example, um, having to play behind closed doors then you, you've essentially deleted a big chunk of home advantage. You know, imagine, imagine the protests from Liverpool if they were asked to play their second leg against Atletico being a goal down from the first leg behind closed doors because of coronavirus. You know, justifiably, they would say, well, Atletico had the advantage of playing in their home stadium and the advantage of the, the pressure being put on the referee by their fans. And, you know, Klopp complained aggressively, the players complained aggressively about the way Atletico had played in that match. And Klopp said that he had to take Sadio Mane off at half time because he was scared he was going to get sent off because the Atletico players were trying to... Um, cajole them into a second yellow card and obviously the the, the crowd have, have an impact on that. Um, so Atletico had their advantage. You take away the you know the famous Anfield advantage for the second leg. Liverpool get knocked out of the Champions League in a quiet stadium by a team playing, you know, tactically defensive football. We know Simeone will 
play and then and that's that's the European Cup holders lose their trophy um, based on an unfair um, disadvantage in the second leg that that's that's one issue you've got it, the questions for the Premier League is once you start and for all these leagues is once you start suspending play where do you put the games when do you one when are you able to restart so in Italy they're saying until April 3rd but I don't know if there's any real understanding or expectation that they will be able to restart on April 3rd it will be a hope that um, that the virus is under control by that stage and um, the quarantine restrictions through the country have been lifted and it's safe to gather people in stadiums again and to play football matches but there, there can't be any guarantee of that so then what do you do? Do you, do you scrap the season? Do you end the season at the current point and say title goes to Juventus because they're top? Um, Champions League places go to the, the teams that are in the top four positions. How can you do that in the Premier League? Okay, you can't take the title. We know that it's Liverpool's title and Liverpool would have to get the title. And if you were to say we're, we cancel the season and no, and we replay it next season, they would rightly protest that they deserve to win it. But what about the Champions League places? They're still open. Mm -hmm. um, what about relegation, which is worth more money um, and potentially survival of, of certain clubs? Look at Aston Villa, for example. Aston Villa, if they go down this season, having gambled hugely on transfer expenditure in the summer, will have serious problems, financial problems in the championship. Imagine trying to say to Aston Villa, well, sorry, we had to um, cancel the league. Uh, it goes on current positions, so you go down without having the opportunity to play all of your opponents twice. Then... The, there's the other question. Once you start suspending a significant number of games, what happens to the Euros? Because the Euros are supposed to start on June 12th. Um, if you have a, a month delay of the Serie A season um, and, and that then goes into a Premier League season, do you try and delay the Euros until August or July? Or do you have to postpone them uh, for another year? And the thing about this Euros is we're talking about a multi-country uh, tournament with 12 host nations. Um, the chances of all of those host nations being clear of coronavirus by the time the tournament takes place can't be particularly good. And if you were actually trying to design a tournament um, to spread disease across countries, then UEFA, basically that's what they've produced with this multi-country, multi-host city model. It's, um, I don't think we're anywhere near to getting um, a grip of how significant this could be to, um, to sport, um, to football. Uh, and you know, th there's another additional element in the UEFA Euro 2020 equation, which is let's say you do the rational thing and you decide we postpone it for a year, then Euro 2020 goes into the summer of 2021, which is the year that FIFA want to uh, start their expanded, high-profile, big-money Club World Cup tournament. How do you do a Club World Cup in the same summer as you're playing European Championship? 
And how do you have the negotiation between FIFA and UEFA over that at a time when relations between FIFA and UEFA are at an all-time low and they're, they're fighting and competing over access um, to television rights and to be the uh, governing body of the biggest club competitions? UEFA are fighting to retain control of the Champions League, as we've talked in the podcast many times. FIFA are trying to get as much control over club football as they can. You would have a situation where UEFA are saying to FIFA, please, can you delay your new club tournament? Because we want to have our our um, uh, international championship that summer and we can't do the two together. Okay, well, we move on to a little bit of news now. And uh, Duncan, you have some on Southampton and a potential change of ownership. Yeah, this is a story I did for the Sunday Times at the weekend. Um, the, the information I have is that Southampton are, are basically being made available for sale by um, the Chinese owner, um, Gao Qisheng who bought 80% of the club in August 2017. Um, There are a number of reasons for this, but um, I I think when we see the financials for Southampton, which uh, they usually release in March, um, but haven't released as yet this month, we'll see part of the reason why Gao is... um, looking to see what money he can get back for the club. So basically, a number of brokers have been asked to try and source a buyer for Southampton. Um, The idea is to get back the enterprise value, um, so the the purchase price plus the debt that Gao took on when he bought 80% of the club from Katarina Liebherr um, two and a half years ago. So you're talking uh, about a, an asking price of around £250 million. People I have spoken to believe it's very unlikely he'll be able to secure that kind of money um, because the, the last uh, time they made a profit was um, in the 1718 um, season. That was a profit uh, after tax, £28.6 But that profit was basically entirely dependent on Virgil van Dijk's um, then record sale to Liverpool for a centre-back. Um, also that season, um, despite Van Dijk's sale, their, their wage to turnover ratio rose to uh, 74%, which is very high for a, for a Premier League club. They have not bought players well since Scout took over. Um, we think of Southampton as a club that's done a great job of producing talent and then selling that talent on to other Premier League clubs, uh, principally Liverpool. Um, but if you look at the, the purchases that they've made in recent years, they, they've had not many hits. They also have a lot of uh, players they've spent good money on and put on good wages who they've, they haven't been able to sell and have had to put out on loan at other European clubs. Um, Guido Carrillo, one example, Wesley Hoot, another. Um, the, their plan at present is to try and have a big sale of players in the summer to raise revenue, to try and balance out the books a bit. But I suspect that that's going to be difficult for them to do because clubs in Europe are aware that they have overpaid for these players. They're aware they're on high salaries and they are aware that, um, that Southampton are basically a, a stressed seller. 
uh, and will be working in the expectation that they can get significant discounts on transfer fees for these players or even get Southampton to subsidise wages to get them part of their wage off the books. Um, so where do they go from there? I, I don't see this as being a particularly positive um, situation for Southampton fans because the owner is asking for what people who are experts in this area think is, is an inflated price tag. Um, if, he, if he isn't prepared to bring it down um, under pressure to get out of the club, um, I think it's going to be difficult for them to sell it this summer, which will leave them in a situation where you have Gao, who's um, changed uh, chief executive, he's changed manager twice. Um, he's let Les Reed, the guy who was very influential in their uh, transfer market business, leave the club during that period. Um, and clearly not having that significant an interest in, in retaining control of the club. So um, this, I think this is a difficult situation for Southampton. And you know, another piece of information I have is that there aren't really that many buyers in the market at present for uh, English football clubs because of the instability over what's going to happen with Champions League. Um, the European Super League places a degree of doubt over the structure of the Premier League going forward. And obviously, if you have that European Super League and doubt over the Premier League, then you have doubts over the viability of the championship. Therefore, if you're buying a club like Southampton that's been in relegation problems for the last three seasons, finished 16th, 2017-18, 17th last season, and are still fighting against relegation this season, you're buying a club where you've got the a big risk of them dropping into a division where very few clubs make profit and um, and a lot of clubs are are under quite severe financial pressure as it stands without having question marks being placed over the, the Premier League's broadcast rights going forward. On the first podcast after the weekend's action, we always, of course, do a heroes and villains round. So we're going to go straight into that. I'm going to give you my hero of the weekend, Duncan, which was Fred, the Manchester United midfielder. Now, there was a bit of excitement on this podcast, I think, when Fred arrived. We thought he was going to be a pretty good signing for Manchester United. But apart from a very good performance against PSG in that um, incredible turnaround in Paris he hasn't really set the heather alight until perhaps in the last few months of the season under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer when he has started to show what he's all about. He signed for around 55 million euros with, with added bonuses, so it was a significant outlay. And uh, it just about now seems like he's a player that's that's actually showing what he can do. And I thought against Manchester City... He was absolutely terrific, snapping at the heels of Manchester City's midfield, giving them very little time and really, really getting stuck into some some excellent work. There was a moment, Duncan, that stuck out to me, which was when he nutmegged Fernandinho. And of course, we know that City did actually want to sign Fred as a potential long-term replacement for Fernandinho. So I thought that was a, a telling moment and Old Trafford certainly responded positively to their man showing that kind of skill and that kind of nice. I thought he was absolutely terrific. So he's my hero of the week. Yeah, I think that's well-deserved. I think um, yeah, 
Brazilians coming into the Premier League, there's always an adaptation period and some don't manage to do it. The ones that do generally turn out to be important players in the league. Once they can get used to the speed of it and the physicality of it, then their, their technical ability um, comes to the front. And I think that's what we're seeing with Fred. He's got his run in the team almost by default because they, have, they had so many injuries in midfield. But from playing consistent football, He's, uh, he's shown his quality and, and we have to remember that he should have had a penalty in that match um, for all that United were fortunate to get their opening goal from a Mike Dean um, refereeing error. Dean made another big error um, in not giving a penalty when um, Otamendi took Fred out in the box and <laughs> to make it worse, giving him a yellow card. And of course, VAR um, managed not to correct that decision when Clearly, that is one that was a clear and obvious error and should have been overturned in that case. Um, so, yeah, good hero of the week. I think my villain comes from the same match and that would be uh, a player who's, <laughs> you could say, has taken the op opposite trajectory because Ederson settled very rapidly in to Manchester City and into English football and uh, been very important in their um, record-breaking seasons. Uh, under Pep Guardiola but that game at Old Trafford um, is not one that will live long in, in his happy memory book because um, not only was he responsible for the, for the opening goal um, he almost got caught out for a second one um, trying to uh, overplay the ball in the box and then of course um, got handed over an assist to Scott McTominay for what was a very well taken second goal from the, the, the Scotland midfielder at the end of the match. So Ederson, the villain of the week. Yep, very well deserved for Ederson, who had a very poor game. But uh, Manchester United won't be caring about that, of course. That's all from us. Uh, we will be back later in the week with another podcast for you. Uh, you can get in touch with us on many of our social media platforms. We are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter. You can get me at Johnny R. McFarlane. And you can get Duncan at Duncan Castles. We're also on Instagram at Transfer Podcast. Duncan, is that correct, Instagram? Yes, transfer, transfer and, podcast. And my Instagram is at Duncan.Castles. And we're on Facebook as well. So wherever you want to continue the transfer window debate, you can on social media. If you could also go onto iTunes, that would be great to give us a five-star review as this helps us get the podcast to as many listeners as possible. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey.